and we read accordingly from Psalm 66, verses 8 to 15. Psalm 66. Verses 8 to 15. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise abroad, who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. For thou hast tried us, O God, thou hast refined us as silver is refined. Thou dost bring us into the net, thou didst lay an oppressive burden upon our loins, thou didst make men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet thou didst bring us out into a place of abundance. I shall come into thy house with burnt offerings. I shall pay thee my vows, which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. I shall offer to thee burnt offerings of fat beasts with the smoke of rams. I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats. Come and hear all who fear God. And I will tell of what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. Would you then turn to the book of Jude and the last in the series on that book, Jude, I'll read the whole of the epistle, Um, the text for the sermon, verses 24 and 25, but uh, to some extent in the sermon I'll be uh, having a bit of an overview and then try to show how that ties in with the last couple of verses, so it's good to be reminded of what was covered in this book as we've worked our way through that. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation... I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels, who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality, and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same manner, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. 
But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And about these also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they were saying to you, in the last time there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now a text. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would enable us to keep constantly before us the greatness of your word and the privilege that it is for us to know it and for us to be able to read it and to have uh, an unspoiled record of it so that we know we we are dealing with the inerrant and infallible word of God. And you have given us the privilege of uh, causing your spirit to indwell within us so that we may hear that word, receive and accept it and embrace it, and also respond to it. And Father, we pray that you would help us to keep those privileges before us as we attend to your word again this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, sometimes there's a, um, a little bit of a... Um, Confusion may be between the, uh, the difference between a, a benediction and a doxology. Uh, most of the epistles end with one or the other, either a benediction or a doxology. 
A benediction is a pronouncement of God's blessing upon his people. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Pronouncement on you, on God's people. A doxology is the people's pronouncement of the blessedness of God's name and that is then praise that is given by God's people to God. And that's the difference between the benediction and the doxology. Now these last two verses at the end of this book of Jude are more of a doxology than a benediction. Now to him, that is to God, it's referring back to God, to him be glory, majesty, dominion and authority. Though having said that, it's also true that this doxology of praise to God has implications for the way that the Lord helps and blesses his people. And it has those it brings those implications by stressing two things. First of all, what he is able to do for us, and secondly, why he is able to do it. What he is able to do and why he is able to do that. Now when the scripture talks about what God what the Lord is able to do for us, firstly, it is certainly not trying to encourage us to look primarily to what we get out of it, uh, to look primarily to what we get out of God. And uh, it's not encouraging us to be self-centered, in other words. Rather, it is encouraging us not to despair at the, the difficulty of the narrow road that lies before us by reminding us that the Lord is surely able to help us in the calling that he himself has given to us. Now, the book of Jude has dealt with several aspects of that calling. And each and every one of those aspects is difficult. In fact, each and every one of them is impossible without the Lord's help. And some aspects of that calling are downright painful. Having to deal with people who are going off the rails in the congregation, that can be an extremely painful thing and a difficult thing. And if we were doing that by ourselves in our own strength, there would actually be no hope of success whatsoever and there would be no hope for the person who was going off the rails because they wouldn't be able to do anything about it either if the Lord did not enable them. So having to deal with that area, for example, without compromise, having to deal with those who were going off into error in congregational life or into sin without compromising, without being unduly influenced by them on our part, or without tending towards a, a wrong kind of uh, toler tolerance, or at the other extreme, having to deal with that without overreacting, or rea rather reacting in an ungodly way, perhaps with undue harshness, or perhaps by uh, trying to act as if we were God ourselves as we dealt with people, Having to deal with problems like that and at the same time having to build ourselves up in the faith, another thing that we couldn't do by ourselves, if it was left to us, we wouldn't be able to build even the smallest amount of growth into our own lives. Having to keep ourselves in that faith as well, we wouldn't last for a minute if the Lord were not helping us. Remember in verses 21 to 23, there was this command that we keep ourselves in the love of God 
while we are at the same time busy trying to rescue people from the burning house of error and sin. But remember also, we looked at this in the past, verse 1 said that those who are called to take on those tasks are those who are loved by God and also those who are kept for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a, a key word, kept or keep, which runs through this passage. As we saw then, our keeping of ourselves is our response. It's not the basis or the ground for God then preserving us because we're already preserving ourselves anyway. No, it's the other way around. We keep ourselves as a response, as an outworking of God's prior grace of preserving us through the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it is a preservation. His preservation is guaranteed by his work on the cross. That work is then applied by the Holy Spirit with the word of God, enabling us to respond by seeking to keep ourselves in what we already have through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that We seek to keep ourselves, for example, by uh, striving with God's help to resist sin, by pursuing holiness with God's help, and all the while, as we do those things, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this doxology, at the end of the book, the theme of keeping comes back yet again. This time, the emphasis is on the fact that the keeping is something that God is able to do. So we have that command to keep ourselves, but the basis for it is that we are kept for the Lord Jesus Christ. And now at the end, we're reminded that keeping of us in the Lord Jesus Christ is something that God is well and truly able to do. He's able to keep you from stumbling, stumbling into sin and error. For example, as you're dealing with error and sin in the church, that you might stumble into it by compromise, by being influenced God is able to keep you from that. He is able to keep you from overreacting and falling into ungodly harshness or into an ungodly acting as if you were God, the judge, jury and executioner and so forth. God is able to keep you from such things so that you will one day stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and full of joy, Blameless because of what the Lord Jesus has done for you, not because of what you've done for him. Blameless because of his work for you and full of the joy of a salvation that he has wrought. Even as we are already blameless in him now, already in this life we're blameless in Christ and we already also have a foretaste of that joy that is to come. So that's the comfort that we are not alone in having to deal with a calling that would otherwise be unbearable for sinners. A reminder that in fact we have help from the one who is fully able to give us exactly the help that we need and who is fully committed to doing so. But there is more to this than just this uh, giving us this basis for comfort in this doxology. There is also... In addition to being encouraged and reassured so that we have, by God's grace, the courage and the energy to embark on the tasks of building and keeping ourselves and 
rescuing some and resisting others. But in addition to that, this doxology is designed to move us to the praise of God, who is our helper, our refuge and our mighty fortress. And that is what Jude himself is doing at the end of the book. He's also being reminded himself that all of these things he's spoken of in his short book that need so much the help of God for these things to be done causes him, as he thinks upon the help that he has from God, causes him to break forth into praise into this doxology at the end. Now to him be the glory and the majesty and so forth. A way of saying to the reader, let us all do that, let us all give that glory to God. Let us all acknowledge his majesty and his praise and praise him for it and thank him for it and recognise and praise and thank him for the help that he supplies to his people in all of these things. Jude is not content, however, with the bare statement that God is able to help us and a call to praise him for it. He also gives an account of the Lord's credentials for this this work of keeping us and enabling us to stand on the last day. Second and final point, why he is able to do it. And in this connection, several things are said about God's person and works. First, we are reminded that God is our saviour. And we are perhaps more used to the New Testament emphasis and think, uh, if I would ask you, who is your saviour? I think most of us, including the children, would say, Jesus, the Lord Jesus is our saviour. We are used to that from the New Testament emphasis on Christ as our saviour, but the Old Testament has many, many verses that proclaim God as our saviour. Psalm 3, verse 8. Psalm 18, verse 2. Isaiah 45, verses 21 and 22. And in fact, in the Old Testament, it is stated most strongly, for example, in Isaiah 43, 11, where God says, I am the Lord and there is no saviour besides me. And Hosea 13, verse 4 says exactly the same. And therefore, when the New Testament calls Jesus our saviour, it's not saying that in a vacuum. It's saying that following on from what is said in the Old Testament, that there is no saviour but God. And then the New Testament says Jesus is that saviour, demonstrating thereby that he is also God, because there is no other saviour. And if God, if the Lord Jesus Christ were not our saviour, there'd be no help for us, there'd be no salvation, there'd be no preservation, and we would be on our own, doomed to failure in every one of those tasks that, uh, and uh, responsibilities that Jude talks about, and indeed every other responsibility or aspect of the Christian life. The role of the Lord Jesus in this is emphasised here, where Jude goes on to say that God is our Saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord. And uh, here you have a, a great uh, symmetry, really, in the way this, this is expressed, when, firstly, God is called Saviour, and we know the Lord Jesus is our Saviour, so that implies Jesus is God. And now here, the Lord Jesus is called Lord, and that is a translation of the name Yahweh, 
And that also implies that he is God with all of that infinite power of God to bring about these works and to uh, aid us in this calling that we have. The power of God to help us in this is made explicit in the next phrase. God, that's the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, has all the glory, the majesty, the dominion and authority to bring to this help that he gives us, to bring for us to, uh, to gain that help. Uh, all glory, uh, the radiance, speaking of the radiance of his truth and his uh, holiness and his whole character, that which brings about fear on the part of his people, that we are filled with awe and reverence because of that shining bright glory, his majesty, his kingly greatness and dignity, his dominion, the outward manifestation of his infinite strength and power and might as he rules and saves and judges. His authority, his right as God, as our creator and ruler and redeemer to exercise his power freely, governed only by his unchanging character rather than limited by creatures or limited by faith or any such thing. And he is the eternal one. The one with all this glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. So those are the credentials of the one who helps and who saves you and who keeps you. And they are infinitely great credentials. Which drives home this point to us that we could not possibly, we couldn't even imagine, let let alone have a better helper than God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we couldn't have a better guarantee either of success in the outcome of the help that he gives. Because this is the God who helps, the one of all glory and majesty and dominion and authority and the God who is uh, eternal. The certainty of this is reinforced by the last word in the book, the word Amen. And I have... uh, on a number of occasions before, well, when we work through the Heidelberg Catechism and you get to the very end of the Heidelberg, dealing with the very end of the Lord's Prayer, and uh, the Heidelberg deals very uh, specifically about that word, Amen. And uh, so we have, it is something we've looked at before. But as you may recall, the word itself, Amen, taken from the Hebrew, is a word that means firmness. It's a word that means certainty. It's a word that means faithfulness and truth. It's a word that means something that's established and supported and absolutely reliable. So Jude's Amen is therefore a statement about the the absolute certainty and reliability of all of these truths that we've been seeing here about God's character and also about his works of saving, helping and preserving us. But that is not all the Amen does. The Amen is not only a statement about God that we find in the scripture, about the certainty of what he says about himself and his works, but it is also a kind of confession on the part of God's people that we recognise these things, that we recognise him as true and faithful and reliable 
and in fact unchangingly so, as the God who is immutable, who is unchanging and unchangeable. The Amen is a response of the believer to the Scripture's Amen, which is about God's faithfulness. And it's on that side of it, that responsive side of it, that some have paraphrased, as I've mentioned before, they paraphrase the word Amen as a way of saying, me too. Or a way of saying, hear, hear, to something we read in the scripture about God's faithfulness. It is a way of saying, we agree. Uh, When we say it together as a congregation, we're saying, we as a congregation agree. When you stand up this afternoon and we read together the uh, Apostles' Creed and you say, amen, at the end of that, you're saying all the things we've just said, all of those things, hear, hear, we agree. We're agreeing that God is certainly able to keep us from stumbling. We are agreeing that God is certainly able to make us stand at the end. We are agreeing with that because we are agreeing that he certainly is our saviour through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are agreeing that that saviour and that God is the eternal Lord of glory, of all glory, majesty, dominion and authority. Well, we've worked our way through a book that largely deals with threats to the church and her members. And in that sense, as I warned at the start of the series, it's a a book that can come across a little bit negatively to us because it's dealing so much with dangers and problems. And a very strong language in dealing with those who cause these problems. So we've worked our way, way through that book and we've looked at those dangers and those threats. And maybe as you think about that and try to apply that to the situation that we're in today, maybe depending on your way of looking at these things, you might be a little bit worried about the state of the the church at large in this world. Or you might be a little bit worried about the state of the Reformed churches of New Zealand or of the Reformed faith in general around the world. Or perhaps your, your concerns are closer to home. Perhaps you're struggling with how to deal with a loved one who is going off the rails and the difficulties of that and the pain of that and uh, you think this is all just too much. Or perhaps you are having trouble regularly using the means of grace to build yourself up. Another thing that's commanded here, to build yourself up. Maybe that's your particular area of struggle. That you find it difficult to discipline yourself to, to use those means, whether that's to take every opportunity you can in church life, or to read the Bible and pray yourself daily. Maybe that's your area of struggle. Maybe at times you even feel like giving up, and that whole thing of having to persevere just seems too difficult. Then remember that which we have been hearing in this book, that Whatever weaknesses you have, and they are plenty, uh, we are filled with weakness and with disability. The point of this doxology is that God is not. That he is infinitely able. He is completely and fully able and fully committed to helping his people. And the word Amen at the end reminds us that that is an absolute certainty. And therefore we may conclude the sermon by saying Amen. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, you have given us so many assurances and reassurances of your character and your works, but we often fail to lay hold of this certainty. We fail to respond in praise as we should. We fail to respond with the obedience that we should and we fail to respond with confidence. And especially so when we find the task difficult or painful, as it may be when we're called to confront sinners, brethren, with their error and sin. Father, that is often a difficult thing and we feel like perhaps leaving it to somebody else. But we pray that you would grant us confidence, not in ourselves, but confidence in you, so that we may persevere ourselves by your grace and that we may have the courage and the conviction to encourage and help others to do so in your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalter Hymnal 119 uh, also gives us uh, some of this, repeats some of this same assurance that the Lord is the one who safely holds our souls in life and steadfast makes our ways. We don't do that ourselves, we make ourselves steadfast. He's the one who makes our ways steadfast. Number 119, we'll uh, sing the whole of that uh, from Psalm 66, which we read uh, part of that earlier. We'll stand to sing it, and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology. Number 119.
after the blessing as our doxology, we sing from number 135 in the Psalter Hymnal, stanza four. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.